Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. Our guest in this episode is Christopher Mayer, portfolio manager and co-founder of Woodlock House Family Capital. Chris is the author of four investment books, including the one titled 100 Baggers, Stocks That Return 100 to 1 and How to Find Them. Chris, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Sure, Stephen. Good to be on with you. I'm guessing that many of the listeners already have a copy of your book, but for those who haven't read it yet, can you please give a description of 100 Baggers and your basic findings? Sure. Well, I started by looking at all the stocks that have gone up at least 100 to 1 since 1962, which is as far back as I could get data at the time. And I wanted to see what were some, if any, common elements among these big, big winners. And the book was inspired by an earlier book by a guy named Thomas Phelps. And that came out in 1972. And it was called 100 to 1 in the stock market. In that book, he looks at all the stocks that had gone up at least 100 to 1 from 19, I forget, 32, something like that, to the time when his book came out. And I really liked that book. I heard Chuck Ockray is a great investor. We may talk more about later, but he mentioned this book in a speech he gave in 2011, I think it was called An Investor's Odyssey or something like that. If you Google it, you can find it online. I definitely recommend that. And, um, you know, I had read all kinds of investment books, but I had never heard of that one. So when I read it, I, I loved it. I used to quote from it and I would talk about it a lot. And finally, someone said to me, you know, you should update that book. And I thought that was a great idea. So that was the uh, beginnings of 100 Baggers. I went and got their data together and the research. And a lot of my findings basically echo what Phelps found. And we can get into some of the details, but the basic idea is it backs up uh, long-term holding periods in high-quality businesses. What I like to tell people is that the 100 bagger equation, it's really a math problem. And if you compound it 20% a year for 25 years, that's 100 to 1. And so what the basic findings of the study are that the businesses have high returns on capital and the ability to reinvest and continue that, do that year after year after year, those were the, the big winners. And it's very kind of simple output, but finding them that's and identifying them ahead of time, identifying the businesses that can keep doing that over long periods of time, that's where the challenge comes in. Plus the ability to hold on through all the ups and downs and long stretches where nothing happens. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, I'd say. Holding on to an investment for decades and benefiting from the compounding sounds easy, but very few have the patience required. It's especially tough for active managers who are measured against a benchmark on a quarterly and annual basis. So how does one strike a balance between staying the course and moving on to shinier, newer ideas when capital is limited? This is a good question. And I think that it comes down to the kind of businesses you select in the first place. So if you keep a very high bar to what you buy and you do a good amount of research so that you know 
what you own pretty well, that those things help you stick with it when times are tough. So you have a certain thesis on something that you think a business will perform well over a decade or longer, and you write this down. I think that helps to write it all out, something you can check against later, your reasons why you owned it. And then the key is to continue to focus on those fundamentals. If those reasons that you bought in the first place are still in play, if it's still growing and still earning those high returns on capital, if the business is still performing, then you have to leave it alone. And I think part of it also comes from the fact that you have to appreciate the difficulty of making these sort of switches midway. So if you've owned the stock for a couple of years and something else is bound to come along, you're going to get a lot of temptations. And recognizing that making those switches is very, very difficult. And not only do you have taxes, maybe even if you don't have taxes, it doesn't matter. It's a hard thing to get repeatedly right. So you're often better at just building a portfolio of companies that you can stick with for a long time. And there's no necessarily any secret magic to how you hold on to it. But you know, even Phelps in his book, he talks about if you only saw the financial results of the companies you're invested in, you were completely ignorant of the stock prices, you would probably never sell most of the businesses you own. With buying right and holding on, in the past, I've changed my mind more than planned. What kind of quality threshold do you think warrants the conviction to hold on forever? And what should one need to see in the follow-up and maintenance work to justify holding on to that conviction? Yes. I think, you know, Warren Buffett has a quote about this where he says something like, if you wouldn't own a business for ten, at least 10 years, then you shouldn't even think about owning it for 10 minutes. And so part of it is forcing yourself to think longer term. I'm sure there's lots of times where you've seen a business or a stock and you've said to yourself, yeah, this will probably be you know, a good trade for a couple of years. So those are the things you have to like, let go. So that will first start to focus your attention on businesses you can own for a very long period of time. As for the minimum quality thresholds, it's hard to talk about those because the numbers vary a lot for different businesses. You know, If I were to just say, look at return on equity, for example, companies can have high returns on equity by having a very leveraged balance sheet. That's why I kind of stick with the general rule of high returns on capital. So you want a business that either high returns on equity, high return on asset, high return on capital employed, high return on invested capital. These are all terms that you can Google and find out how they're calculated. But you want to invest in those businesses where, say, you could draw the line at 20%. Say you're only going to invest in businesses that are, are that higher, maybe um, maybe 15% is your hurdle, and you stick to that. So, uh, And a big part of that is evaluating the competition. Sometimes businesses will, actually, I run into this a lot. You find businesses that generate high returns on capital, but they're in a field where there's a lot of competition. So you have to come to understand that that's not likely going to be sustainable unless they have something that makes it very difficult for competitors to copy what they're doing you should generally be much less interested. I focus a lot on competition with this approach, and that will help you find things that you can hold for a long time. On a related note, I'd like to bring up Chuck Acre, because besides you, he's one of the few I can think of who has every intention of holding on to his investments for decades. You wrote in your book about how you met up with him. So what kind of impact and what kind of impression did he make on you? He had a big influence on how I think about things now. And it took a little while. I joke with him because I still stay in contact with him and we talk every now and then. I joke with him that it took me a long time to learn what he first tried to teach. I first met him in person doing the book. So this was probably 2013, I think. And I met him in his office in Middleburg. And it's a very kind of calm place down there. And it's not like you walk in there and you see CNBC on the TV or quote machines or anything like that. You see quotes 
it's multiple computer screens and all, any of that. It's a very complex, looks like a library, really. But, you know, he used to say that rate of return is the bottom line of all investing. And that's what he's talking about, the return of the capital of the business and hanging with him as long as that is true. And just studying his career, he's a guy who had at least 200 baggers, one with Berkshire, which he's owned for a long time, and American Tower. And reading his letters and studying his career, I mean, it really started to come through for me about what, you know, how this made sense and how this is something that I wanted to do at the exclusion of other things. Because normally the way I used to run portfolios that I'd have some stocks that you want to hold long term, but I also had another little bucket, maybe we did special situations and another little bucket, maybe we did certain other ideas and it took me a while to really figure out and understand in a deep way the lesson he's teaching and why that is a great way to invest. So it, it did take a while. Now, going back to Phelps, an important point he made was that one shouldn't just buy and forget, but rather a key intention of the buy and hold mantra was to counter unproductive activity. With Chuck Ackray, just to be clear, he held on to the Berkshire Hathaway and American Tower examples for decades on their paths to 100-bagger status, and they are still holdings to this day in his fund. But even then, he'll make the odd trade despite mostly sitting still. So there seems to be a gray area balance of inaction and action. Yes, it's a great point. And, that, and that's exactly it. I mean, you, you don't want to just buy the stock and then completely never look at it again. Um, that's not what Phelps advocated. That's not what Chuck does. And that's not what I do. So for the companies I have in my portfolio, I'm frequently doing work on them in one way or another, not only trying to follow along with their quarterly reports, but talking to competitors and kind of keeping tabs on them and even talking to employees, former employees. There's a lot of other little kind of activity that goes on that I like to do just to kind of deep in my understanding of the business and the environment that it operates in. But what the whole 100-bagger and 100 to 1 and Chuck's investment thesis or investment philosophy all pushes back against this more prevalent idea that somehow you want to anticipate the ups and downs, you want to try to capture certain segments of the market run and then be out in another time. I mean, the whole thrust of Wall Street otherwise is to create transactions. And even in news and financial press, everything is geared toward you know, what you should buy now or what's hot now or what looks dangerous now. But if you take this approach, the more 100 to 1 kind of 100 bagger approach, you enter into these ideas of stocks with the idea that you're going to hold them through the ups and downs. You're going to hold them through recessions. You're going to hold them when they seem to get a little expensive ahead of the fundamentals. And it's just a point of logic if you think about it. To really, you're going to get a big, huge return on a stock. It requires you to own it for a long time. And that requires ownership through recessions. And it means keeping it even when it seems like it might be Although the stock may be ahead of the business, which invariably happens with a lot of these names. And you have to suffer through the drawdowns and the periods of boredom. Drawdowns always get people's attention. When you look at these stocks that return at least 100 to 1, almost all of them were cut in half at one point or another. Even Berkshire Hathaway, which is the best performing stock in the study, was cut in half at least three different times. But there was also long stretches of boredom, which I think can be just as difficult. And in Berkshire's case, for example, there was a seven-year stretch where it went nowhere. And yet that was the best performing stock in the study. Seven years is a long time to hold on to something that goes nowhere, especially if you're a professional investor and you're being evaluated quarterly and annually on your performance. So these are some of the challenges to getting those big returns. That's right. And that's why I think Phelps's book more than half a century ago and your book is more relevant than ever. He emphasized back then that people tend to trade far too much. So in today's age of instant gratification, thanks to technology, you'd have to think those lessons are even more important to keep in mind. Right. And it's so easy to buy and sell stocks. It's so easy to just hop on your account and, and buy something or sell it. I mean, that makes it harder too. 
think about how we we own real estate. You know, it's difficult. You got to go through a whole process of settlement, and there's transaction costs are large, so it makes it more difficult. When you if you were going to buy an investment property, you would think much much more carefully about making that investment. I think with stocks, sometimes because people think they can get in and out of them very easily, the amount of work they do is less than what they might do buying a washing machine. I mean, it's really something. So absolutely, I agree. And with real estate, and I have commercial real estate in mind, you are forced to be more thoughtful. Not only do you need to secure financing, but as a base case, investors seem to be more grounded in terms of valuing the properties on, say, net operating income and then applying a cap rate. Those tools are a standard part of the process in commercial real estate. But with stocks, that's how it should be, though that probably isn't how decisions are made most of the time. Yeah, I think so. And one of the authors of the, an article I like it came out in 1984, I think, called The Coffee Can. His name is Robert Kirby. And in that article, he mentions that investing would be better if it was approached with the same mindset as real estate investors. With all those reasons you mentioned, you, you really start thinking about the real estate as an economic asset. And I apply that same kind of thinking to the stock market. I'm looking at when I buy a stock, I think about it as I'm going to be a partner in this business. And there's a lot of thought there that goes into it, not just the financial analysis, but you also have to think about the people. Are these managers people you're going to trust or be happy to be invested alongside with? What about the the business itself? Is it something that you're interested in, interested in enough to follow it? What about the the ups and downs of it? Is is the business inherently cyclical? And you, are you really prepared to hold through those cyclical downturns? So there's a lot of other questions to answer that more have to do with, I guess you could call it the psychology of owning the stock. How are you going to react to different things that are bound to happen? And to think about those ahead of time. And let's not dismiss how distracting market volatility can be, even for long-term investors like us. Going through a 50% drawdown in a stock can be outright distracting for those with the coolest heads. Yeah, I mean, seeing the prices is almost like a little call to action themselves, a little blinking lights. And the movement in any particular stock in any given year is quite a lot. You pick up any stock and, and look at the 52-week high and low. is quite a difference between them. And then you multiply that over a number of years. I mean, you're going to see a lot of volatility. So you have to be prepared for that. And one way to manage that distraction is simply not to look as often. And I've tried to do this as well with my fund. I mean, a lot of times I don't look at the prices during the day. I take a peek at the end of the day or I take a peek in the morning. I try to push that out as far as I can, but it's hard to because sometimes I'm curious and sometimes I have cash and I'm looking to put to work. So yeah, not looking as often is helpful. Now, it looks like you've had some great success with what you call serial acquirers. Are there key things you look for beyond the numbers in this area? Definitely. I mean, I like that model in the right hand. I think it can create a lot of value. It's very much focused on people. So you have to really trust the people calling the shots. And preferably, they have. I would, I'd like them that when they have a lot of skin in the game. So when they own a lot of stock too. That's one. Two is doing that without a lot of leverage or without much leverage at all. One of the most successful serial acquirers would be Constellation Software. And they've done it with practically no financial leverage. So, I mean, they use some, but very lightly leveraged compared to what you might see private equity use or other acquirers that use a lot of debt to buy other companies. So those are two big components, really try to get a handle on the people, the culture, what, how they think about capital. I mean, one of the things I love about some of the Swedish serial acquirers is their focus on return on capital employed and something that they talk about in their letters, something they report on. They're focused on the same things you would want to be focused on as an investor, as opposed to just saying, you know, they want to increase sales or earnings, which by themselves can actually be bad goals. 
if you don't take into account some kind of per share metric and you can easily go astray in those models. Right. And it goes back to the saying that incentives are everything. And I know that management compensation is something you pay pretty close attention to. I mean, checking that management incentives are set in a way that is aligned with shareholders. Yeah. I mean, one of the first things I look at when I look at a company is I pull up the proxy, which shows you who owns the stock and how the executives are paid. And a lot of times that will end it right there because I'll find the management team owns 1% of the shares or the incentive structure is something I think is no good, which is based on increasing sales or EBITDA or some not particularly relevant metric you know, that you'd rather see as an investor. You'd rather see some kind of maybe cash flow, free cash flow per share. It'd be wonderful. You run into those companies every now and then that where they have incentives actually based on return on invested capital, where there's some consideration for the amount of capital that is used to create earnings and cash flow. So those are rare, but those are good ones when you find them. Let's say you buy a holding that turns out to be a big, big winner. And as a result, it grows into a massive position in terms of its percentage weighting. How do you think about risk management in a situation like that, where at that point, the winner not only has an outsized weighting, but its valuation is now quite a bit more expensive than where it started? So how do you think about right-sizing or rebalancing if you do? I'm very reluctant to trim anything. And the reason is that I believe that outperformance really can come from a couple areas. One is being more concentrated. So I only have 10 stocks in my portfolio, but I'm not saying that's necessarily the right number. It could be 15 or 20, but whatever. Many funds have a lot more than that. And so then one position doesn't seem to matter as much. I like concentration. But then the second key of that is to allow a winner to really become, go ahead and take over a portfolio. So for that reason, I'm willing to let them grow. I mean, in my fund, there's a limit in the doc legal documents. I can't have a position be more than 25%. But as my own internal practice, I would never push a position beyond 10. But if it grows beyond that, that's okay with me. And if you really sit down and do the math, it's pretty difficult for a stock to you know, get to 25. It means everything else would have to do pretty much nothing and that one stock would really have to dominate, but it could happen. And that would be a high class problem, as I say. I would be okay having that challenge. And you know, there's plenty of stories that I've, I've read where different money management firms own, let's say, Walmart and they had, you know, they kept trimming it back. But if they had just left Walmart alone, it would have been worth more than all the assets they had under management. You know, there are these kinds of stories that are floating around out there. So you really want want to let your winners run and your winners pull the freight of your portfolio. They can really do a lot of work if you get one or two big winners in there and and you want to get the full effect of those winners. And the way to do that is to leave them alone and, and let your portfolio become quite unbalanced. Before I let you go, can you share a bit about your role at Woodlock House Family Capital? It looks like you joined them around 2019. Is it all family office or do you also accept outside capital? Well, I work with the Bonner family office and 2019, we started the fund and it's a private investment partnership. We are not really open to the public generally. I mean, the money that's in there, people who know me or we have some relationship with them, that's Woodlock House. So we've just finished up our fourth year going in year five and been going very well. I'm happy with the portfolio and what we've got. And I really look forward to seeing how some of these ideas play out. I mean, I write about some of the things we own on my blog and on my Twitter account. So you get an idea what I have in the portfolio by following those things. And a great blog it is. I've been reading your posts. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. I hope to have you back as a guest soon. All right, Stephen. That was was good. Thank you for having me on. Hopefully uh, inspired some of your listeners to hunt for big game. That's right. And if you haven't already picked up a copy of Chris's book, 100 Baggers, I recommend you do so. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please like and share. Questions can be sent to podcast at starvinecapital.com. Lastly, thank you for the reviews on Apple Podcasts, as it helps us get discovered.